You're listening to Decay Mag Sessions The Harrowing Hi, honey. How's it going? Hey, baby. Um, Two down, three to go. What time do you think you'll be home? Got another John coming in, so about a rackers for the night, maybe one. Not when you two know each other. Uh, second grade? I saved his ass from a group of bullies. We joined the force together. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. You're listening to DK Mag Sessions, episode 20. DK Mag Sessions is the podcast in which we take one film, focus on that particular film, break it down with the topics, little nuances behind horror, thriller, and science fiction. We also will be featuring exclusive interview. And in this segment, we are focusing on the upcoming supernatural horror thriller titled The Harrowing, directed by John Keyes. Also featured in this segment, we have exclusive interview with director-writer John Keyes, as well as the lead actor Matthew Tompkins and actress Ariane Martin. In this episode we have special guests everything horror podcast team members paul dosky and tessa baker thank you guys for this episode and this is also our final episode for 2018 well hello everybody good day evening night wherever you are (laughs) and Paul and Tessa are going to be presenting their own segment. I'm going to open the platform. We're going to be discussing the various elements of this upcoming film, The Herring, which Tessa and Paul, this is a surprise to me. I did not know that December 25th is a great day to release a horror film on VOD, DVD. That surprises me. Yeah, I, I never would have guessed myself. Yeah, that definitely is a shocker. This film is going to be released via Clay Epstein's Film Mode Entertainment. And in my interview with John Keyes, he had mentioned, yeah, it, it is uncanny, but even he was surprised through his distributors that, yes, this is a key date for horror films to be released because horror aficionados such as yourself, Paul, Tessa, and myself. We don't want to watch Christmas movies. We want to watch horror. That makes fucking sense right there. (laughs) I never, I guess, would have ever even thought of that. But yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, we'll probably be open up GIF and then after that's done and have a a glass full of eggnog and maybe alcohol. I mean, uh, some eggnog. um, (laughs) We can uh, just sit down, relax and watch horror films. Wow, and and this is why that like the perfect day. Exactly, this is why the distributors earned the big bucks. Uh, I, I I think they have all this psychology thing, uh, this market research on when is a good time to release a film. And wow, Christmas! I would never have guessed. Like I said, I neither would I. But okay then. <laughs> well, for the listeners. The Harrowing. What's it about? Well, here's a synopsis. Haunted by the realistic killing of his best friend, 
a vice detective determined to discover the truth goes undercover in a forensic hospital and is plunged into his own personal hell where demons might be real. Man, that shit is deep right there. Uh, Paul, what did you... Have you read the synopsis on INDB? That shit is... That's pretty deep right there. Uh, yeah, I'm actually looking at it right now. And I've read it before when uh, you were talking to us about uh, coming on to help you and stuff like that. And, you know, when I first read it, I was just like, huh, okay. Like, um, how... how messed up can this really be versus something along the line of have we kind of seen this before so I was skeptical in a way going into it because it's like okay have I seen this but it actually from the storyline I think it's pretty much spot on when I read the synopsis myself I was thinking the same thing hmm have I seen this before and I don't usually get swayed so easily when I read the synopsis I usually just delve into the film itself and I was quite surprised. Uh, well, without further ado, let's start DK Mag Sessions, episode 20. Segment 1 Character Arc. In this segment, we're going to be discussing the character arc. And for those listeners who are curious, uh, in recent horror films, we are seeing writers focusing on the character element, whether it may be the antagonist, the protagonist, or both. The psychological and supernatural element are a fine combination in horror cinema because as a viewer, you're uncertain if the character is suffering from a mental illness or is he or she suffering from a haunting, a supernatural uh, entity of some sort? Here's a quote from Matthew Tompkins, who portrays the protagonist in the film The Harrowing. He states, quote, The Harrowing is carefully constructed to be a powerful synergy of elements that make it one of those rare elevated genre films with a true crossover appeal to a wide variety of hardcore fans. Unquote. Beginning on this topic, we're going to be discussing character arc. And that is a term in which the character changes from Act 1 to Act 3. All good movies have this arc. And it's rare the occasion... Perhaps, let's say, in the occasional action movie film in which the character doesn't have that type of arc. But 80% of films do. Uh, opening the platform for discussion, uh, Paul and Tessa, who also joins me on the discussion from Everything Horror Podcast. Uh, watching the film The Harrowing, what were your initial impressions on this developing character and how he changed from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. I thought it was very interesting how he, he changed from beginning to end. Um, he seemed of, of sound mind at the beginning of the movie. And as the, the film progresses, you see him 
going into a spiral and declining and questioning things like who who am I really what's going on here like is this all real or is this all in my head right you Paul um yeah I mean kind of like what you were saying Tessa is that you know we see this guy who is trying to lead some type of investigation with the um, prostitute and stuff going on and then we kind of get this weird um, scene where he's in the bar and across from or not really across but we'll just say across oh the coffee shop yeah Yeah. the coffee shop trying to get you know some drinks for everybody and stuff because they were his turn apparently to buy coffee but anyway you when when it gets to the scene, I myself already am going. Okay, who is this bored wom- woman that is reading a damn book? Because I, I was like, you know, I'm like, I have a feeling because I've seen some movies like this where I'm like, you know, is she gonna be the one that's so, somehow involved in this? And then you know, for some weird reason, you just get that unbored focus point camera angle on the lady, you know, reading the book. And then that's really much it. And then as we come back, we see the aftermath of the beginning, which is very interesting. And then, you know, kind of like, once again, Tessa saying, um, you know, he starts to question everything. You get, you see him start to decline more into the uh, darkness, per se. And uh, on top of all of that, with the ending of, you know, the beginning and ending, it was, it was something. I mean, I, I don't think I really want to say too much right now, but what to say, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was surprised at that type of ending. I knew something was going to happen at the end with this character, but I did not know it would be such a drastic change such as that. And when I saw the film for the second time, the, the first time I was, I was questioning, I said, wait a second, it feels too quick, too abrupt to present that type of 360 turn on this character. And then watching it a second time, I said to myself, oh, okay, now things make sense. That's the thing with these type of films. You, you can't go to the cinemas and watch this film once. You're not going to get it. You have to watch it two or three times to, in order to digest all the shit that this guy is going through and I was really rooting for the guy and when I saw that final act I was oh come on really wasn't what I was expecting Um, uh, Tessa have you noticed lately the shift of films that are really emphasizing mental illness and in our previous episode we focused on the film Dry Blood and in that scenario the writer uh, Clint Carney he used the element of addiction which is something we don't usually see in horror thrillers oh yeah I've noticed in a lot of films lately that uh, psychological elements are definitely present um, either uh, surrounding mental illness like you said um, people are either a lot of movies that I've seen people are in an institution or um, some kind of an asylum and or just like people just dealing with mental illness like in their everyday lives 
it definitely has become bigger in films and you see it a lot more frequently now than you used to. And I think a lot of um, directors are trying to shine light upon uh, mental illness. Horror is not just about blood and gore. It serves as a great platform, uh, a talking point with social or political uh, situations that reflect our current standing. And I'm glad that writers are now involving mental illness because it it bring it shines a spotlight, like you said, and also we're not seeing the regurgitated content. So one person could focus on addiction. Someone else could focus on sleep deprivation or sleep paralysis. So the, the playing field is wide open. And in this case, with the character that Matthew Tompkins portrays, I'm getting a sense of uh, trauma, um, being a oh, guilt remorse I, I say he has a guilty conscience of all the shit that he has done that he just fabricated this whole scenario in his mind that he's pretty much haunted with demons paul what were your uh initial perceptions on 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 this poor poor soul oh man i mean there's some great scene where you know want they actually show you what was really going on in this particular uh, fabrication versus what would really happen in reality. Like, uh, you know, you see Ryan in in the bed with his wife talking, and then, you know, then it actually shows what reality was, which was Ryan actually in his um, hospital bed talking to the... Uh, Ella. Ella. So, it... It plays out so much with these weird, um, we'll just say flashbacks or nightmares, really, because it's it's. If I'm saying flashbacks as a way of saying it's it's more of a of a fabrication way of, you know, you think you remember that really happened, so it's like a flashback, and then it's really like that. It's a different perception of reality. It just shows a good way of how somebody can. Um, fabricate a specific past into what is really going on. Right. Yeah, like they can fabricate memories and a life that you're not even 100% positive was actually theirs. Uh, spectacular. Paul, you mentioned also camera angles and when the director when the writer and director of a specific psychological horror film such as this really does choose the right angles or blurs out a certain individual that is that's remarkable because it, it just makes you think hmm uh, what we've seen is real here uh, what, what's going on and that's why when these type of movies you gotta watch it for a second time because th these are little clues or something to guide you along the way to make you think hmm I don't think this is reality I think this is all in his mind and certainly that's the case in the harrowing yeah kind of like that clue that I was kind of mentioning to you earlier Ken about the whole at the very beginning of the scene we see Ryan ha uh, you know 
like I said, talking with those people with his partner there, uh, Jack. Jack. And then, then as he's on the ground with that specific scene, trying to, you know, defend himself from what's happening, you, after this is, this is, uh, me coming to the second viewing of this is what I'm trying to say to viewers, but I did notice, um, or listeners, I mean, is that after watching the film the first time and you start to notice the weird mark that is on Ryan's left forehead, and then when you watch it the second time at the very beginning, that mark is actually not there yet. Hmm. Yes, you did point that out, and I did not catch that. So, applause to you for having that keen eye there. <laughs> well, I, it, I when I see something like that in a movie, I hate to say it, but it's almost like uh, uh, what is that famous word from? I think uh, I believe it was Robin Williams actually in that one specific film. No, not not Robin Williams. It was. Uh, Austin Powers. I forget the guy's name right Mike, now. Mike, Mike Myers. Mike, mm, yeah. Yes. You know, when he sees the mole and he's like, <laughs> mole. Money, money, mole. <laughs> so it's just like, <laughs> like me saying, oh my God, what the hell is this thing? <laughs> so once I noticed it wasn't there in the beginning for the second time around, that's when I was like, wait a minute. So, yeah. Mm. And that that's hilarious with that molly 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 and you see scar 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 <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> that's hilarious but yeah it just goes to show you how you have to watch a movie like this more than once i didn't catch that you caught it now i gotta watch it a third time to see what other things that i missed and th these are clues uh that the writer director always i mean when you're the director of your own film that you wrote you could really play it however you feel i think that wearing those two hats come well together sometimes they don't but in this case it does and nah, I agree and Tessa I'm gonna put you on the spot here uh, when I was watching The Herring and it just also ties in with character arcs and psychology when he when the main character when the protagonist when he was already admitted to the hospital and he was undergoing some some delusions there it reminds me of the actual this is this is not con non conspiracy actual true how the government would have patients undergo traumatic experiences and program them to uh, do or commit certain things trauma-based programming have you heard of uh, that experiment that the u.s government has done because it it reminds me of that when i was watching the harrowing i i can't i can't say that i have but i've had suspicions about it um about how people could be be programmed um in the government because our, our government's fucked up anyways <laughs> um but anyways um yeah i could definitely see um like psychological brainwashing going on within the government and um 
having like con- t- uh, controlling people like mind controlling people to do what you want them to do you know making them go against their own free will of thinking and um personally i think the concept is fucked up but well it can be triggered by anything it yeah can be triggered trigger, by... like trigger words or yeah. an image or a sound or anything really right and you know like you've seen in movies where like they have like sleeper agents or whatever and then you they use a phrase or you know a sound and it wakes up the sleeper agent right you know and then they can put the and then after they get them to do the deed that they want they can put them back to sleep and they have no recollection of doing it right yeah yeah that experiment is uh, M- M- MK, the letter M, the letter K, MK Ultra uh, program. One film that really touched on that is The Manchurian Candidate. The, I think there was a remake with Denzel Washington. Or that or. film really emphasized. But for the harrowing, I see he, the protagonist, was going under some trauma. He goes into a hospital, and all of a sudden, he's not who he say he was. to my interpretation I feel that whatever he went through in the hospital he must have been programmed in some way because we see a timeline where this character just flips and we're hmm what the fuck is going on here And, and that sets everything up for the last portion of the film which is an intrigue once again intriguing 360 uh, well, to- you do. Well, you do notice that nurse Nurse Decker yes. uses weird, like syringe gun on yes. him. Oh, yes. What the hell is in that syringe exactly. gun? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, like boosting him up with some kind of freaking zombie type infection. <laughs> like. A, like- some kind of like mind control juice like exactly. wire your brain to do what we want like to make you believe what we want you to believe exactly uh, I, to me I think how the to close off the segment I, I think to me the protagonist I think he was who he said he was from the beginning and everybody just mind fucked the shit out of him to think that he's not who he says he is in the end of the film. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a terrible, right. terrible mind fuck on his part. <laughs> I felt bad for the guy. I was like, oh wow. Yeah, I feel yeah. That that was a good play. That was a good play, especially when. Oh, well, well played, Doctor Franklin Whitney. Well yes, played. Yes, well played. <laughs> <laughs> I- I, I was rooting for the guy and wow but, uh, tip, I took my hat off to director writer John Keyes for uh, showcasing such an elaborate character arc and John, John Keyes he is a busy guy he has a slate of films coming out uh, for the 2018 early 2019 calendar year he has Doom Room, I think is a week apart. So the Harrowing is first and Doom Room is releasing next. Amazing. Busy guy. Segment two. Exclusive interviews. The Harrowing director. Writer. John Keyes.
Actor. Producer. Matthew Tompkins. Our first slate of interviews covering the upcoming film, The Harrowing, features a joint conversational interview with director-writer John Keyes and actor-producer Matthew Tompkins. Mr. Tompkins portrays the main role, the protagonist in the film, The Harrowing, Ryan Calhoun. The Harrowing. Once again, the synopsis reads as follows. Haunted by the ritualistic killing of his best friend, a vice detective determined to discover the truth goes undercover into a forensic hospital and is plunged into his own personal hell where demons might be real. In this conversational interview, we delve into the various aspects of character development, horror cinema, and of course, little bits and pieces of the harrowing, pun intended. Because if you watch the movie, there's a lot of bits and pieces, bloody bits and pieces, that is. In any event, here, I, with great pleasure, I present my conversational interview with director-writer John Keyes and actor-producer. And to begin the interview, oh, by the way, my name is Ken Artuz, founder for DK Mag, and thank you, gentlemen, for your time for this interview opportunity. You're welcome. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And to start the interview, uh, a little origin story from you both, how you got your start into filmmaking and also taste in horror cinema thrillers, beginning with Matthew. Oh, wow. Uh, well, how I got into acting, I guess, would be the easiest way to answer that question. And that was just, I was the little kid in my neighborhood with the Super 8 camera running around recruiting people into my little movies I wrote and uh, I get them developed on a little corner camera store and then broadcast them on a Saturday night on a big sheet in my backyard, much to the delight of our neighbors and my friends. And that sort of moved into, uh, on some level, I, I'm sure I wasn't even conscious of wanting to be in films professionally, but I was an athlete through most of high school and college and didn't really declare as a theater major until my junior year of college. And then Caught the bug for real and uh, wrote a couple of plays that my university produced back in the late 80s and directed them and then moved straight to New York City uh, as a writer in residence for an off-Broadway theater. And, uh, and then an actor around town on stage and in commercials and little TV spots. And then in the early 90s, moved from New York to Dallas, Texas, because I got cast as a regular on two TV shows. Uh, back in the early 90s, one of them, a children's show called Wishbone, and the other was uh, the old uh, hoary CBS chestnut uh, Walker, Texas Ranger, and always with the intention of moving back to New York, but the work became so steady here in film and TV over the years that I ended up just kind of staying in Dallas and uh, and then flying out wherever I needed to go for work, Los Angeles, New York, or wherever, and was basically just an actor in broadcast, uh, you know, network television and, and films until the early 2000s when I decided to start producing and uh, sort of in, in a weird kind of way, sort of get back to the little kid who wrote, directed and produced all those little Super 8 movies, just wanting to have slightly more control over my own professional and 
artistic destiny. And, uh, and so I did. And about my third film in, it was a, a film called Killing Down, an action thriller that another director, uh, writer here in town, a gentleman named Blake Calhoun, had written as a vehicle for me. And, uh, and while we were on the set shooting, I kept hearing uh, from other people about John Keyes and that he was making these really amazing horror films in Fort Worth that were developing a real cult following and that he was a go-getter and a super creative guy and, and uh, you know, was was someone that I needed to meet, that everyone thought we would be great uh, collaborators and everybody was in John's ear too about it. And so John came to the set midway through shooting that movie and uh, we met and I'm sure John would agree. It was sort of anticlimactic because, I mean, I was working and he was just kind of passing through and, you know, we didn't make much of an impression on each other other than we liked each other. And then shortly after that, John got tapped to direct a, a movie for New Films International called Living and Dying with uh, Michael Madsen and, and Arnold Boslew, as it turns out, a gentleman that's in the harrowing and uh, Byling and Edward Furlong. And, and he tapped me uh, to play his uh, police uh, sergeant in that show. And that kind of started our collaboration. We so enjoyed it that we, you know, we're, I don't know, uh, uh, 11 or 12 films in now uh, with each other and have a really great dynamic with each other. I, I generally, in our scenario, I'm a producer, lead actor, and he is the writer, director, and also the producer. And, and we have very different strengths that tend to sort of accentuate what, what we each do well. And, and so that, while I keep my hand in as an actor, obviously, uh, and in movies like Sicario and Parkland and Crypto with Kurt Russell, which John was a part of, and TV series like The Gifted on Fox and Longmire and stuff like that, my heart and soul now is Wolfman Productions and Highland Mist and producing the films that we make. And I was, a, a while I enjoy horror films and always have, um, and was a bit of a fiend for them growing up. Uh, in fact, I was just explaining to my son uh, that he kept asking me, my, right now my six-year-old boy is obsessed with Chucky <laughs> and Child's Play and all of it and the entire <laughs> Chucky franchise. And that's graduating into, you know, Michael Myers and Jason and Freddy Krueger and, you know, on down the line. And he keeps asking what the scariest, what is the scariest movie you've ever seen, Daddy? And I have to tell him at least the movie that made the biggest impact on me in the early 80s that really did give me nightmares was the original Howling. The werewolf movie, The Howling, the original, none of the none of the subsequent movies, but the original was really with D. Wallace was terrifying. And so um, he's not old enough to show it to him yet, but but I've always had a taste for it and always been a big genre fan and all of the branches of that tree, you know, fantasy and science fiction and um, action thrillers, psychological thrillers. But John was really the maestro of this particular genre. And the movies I had been producing tended to be slightly more, you know, art house fair. So, like, you know, uh, some action components and some, you know, some thriller components, but they tended to be, you know, not, not in the horror genre at all. And, and John and I, you know, wanted to sort of combine what we both thought were kind of our own individual cinematic sensibilities. And John, you know, came up with the idea of the harrowing. He's like, look, I, I want us to try to sort of blend what we do. So let me write the, let me write a vehicle for you. And, uh, but in in the genre that I know very well, and let but let's make a different kind of genre movie, sort of an elevated genre movie. And so he wrote the harrowing after a couple of passes, and he can walk you through that. And uh, and it just it just became so much more than we anticipated. So that was that's was sort of my entree into this entire um, you know life as an actor from early on. And then you know I wanted to kind of walk you through my 
friendship and collaboration with John as we as we go forward. We've got lots of movies we want to make, and really, really excited about the harrowing. Obviously, thank you so much. Yeah, and you know, and then for myself, uh, you know, I actually I kind of. I grew up uh, just outside of Hollywood, and uh, my grandfather, um, back in the early 40s, uh, was a background actor, a bit actor. And so I kind of grew up in a family that just loved movies, and, and you know, we, we, could, we devoured movies and couldn't get enough of movies. But kind of interestingly enough, kinda, even at an early age, I got really intrigued by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, you know, the birds and psycho and the rear window and sort of all of those movies and, and became really fascinated by, you know, Hitchcock and what he did and the way he told stories, even as a young boy. But it's sort of, you know, funny enough, my aunt, you know, back in the seventies, my aunt used to build Halloween houses back before people did Halloween houses. And so I sort of grew up my whole life you know, doing and helping her and being a part of these Halloween houses and becoming completely intrigued by Halloween and horror and things like that. And I remember, you know, I would spend spend nights and weekends with her and my cousins and back on the old cable days of like on TV and ZTV, we would watch Halloween and Friday the 13th. Those are the two that, that really stand out for me the most from back then was, was Halloween and Friday the 13th and how scary they were, you know, to my young mind and, and how interesting it was and how it made me feel. And, and then at the same time, I was also just incredibly affected by the effects and became really fascinated by the effects. And so I really got growing up, I really became fascinated by the slasher genre um, and, and, and got involved, you know, in high school doing special effects makeup. And of course, I was a big fan of Rick Baker and Tom Savini and, and folks like that. But it, it's kind of interesting is I never intended to actually be a filmmaker. I, I thought maybe I might go into special effects and makeup, but if, if anything, I knew I wanted to be a storyteller. I knew I wanted to be a writer. So, you know, just kind of jumping forward a whole bunch of years, I became an entertainment journalist writing for Fangoria and Cinefantastique and Femme Fatales and, you know, a lot of the different genre magazines. And I was doing the press junk and stuff. And I read a, wrote a horror movie called American Nightmare that I just sort of, you know, expected that I might try to sell it or might try to get somebody to make it and mm-hmm. um, bring Steve and tour actors that asked, you know, she's, she read it and thought it was phenomenal. She's like, you should just go make this yourself. And I was like, Oh, that's an interesting idea. Okay. I'll do that. <laughs> and, uh, and about a year after, uh, about a year after making that decision, we started to roll cameras on American nightmare and it did really well. Um, and suddenly I had other companies and distribution companies asking me to make horror movies for them. You know, and, and for me, horror, I, I'm more intrigued by human horror. I'm intrigued by um, the horror that exists, the darkness that exists within within people. So I would say a lot of what I get attracted to and also end up subsequently making is horror movies that deal more with the darkness within and how how we as humans can be our own monsters and creatures inside. So I've done a lot of slasher films and, you know, a lot of movies that kind of work that way. You know, and then just kind of jumping into, you know, Matt said, I mean, Matt sort of just defined how we met and, and, and our relationship, but we were doing a lot of stuff and a lot, a lot of stuff together. And of course, Matt's kind of back, you know, Matt's done a lot of acting as a police officer uh, or, you know, law enforcement officers and stuff like that. And, and I had this idea for a script and, and I was like, you know, I really want to write something for Matt. We've been working together for so long and had done so much stuff together. I was like, I really want to see Matt in a lead role in something that I'm directing 
and of course something that we would be producing together. And and so that was sort of the how the heroin came about. And of course, once again, without giving too many little things away, you know, it was a uh, it, it, you know it's a, it's also a horror movie about the darkness within. Um, and so you know, I wrote the first I wrote the first act of the movie, the first twenty pages or so, and 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 just kind of sat on it sat on it for a little bit. And Matt and I bounced some ideas back and forth and we talked a little bit. And then um, I think I wrote the entire script. The first draft of the entire script was written in about six or eight weeks. Um, mm-hmm. Knowing that so well and just knowing, knowing what I was, you know, knowing the direction the story was going. So, so that was sort of how we, you know, we took that, you know, our own relationship and our partnership uh, up a notch from just, you know, collaborating on, on other people's projects to, um, you know, producing one together me directing Matt starring and giving Matt a vehicle to really showcase how, how completely talented he is. And, and a lot of the festival reactions have been just phenomenal on that level of Matt's ability to carry that whole movie with so many emotional arcs all the way through. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I can't say enough about how, how great Matt did in that movie. And I'm so glad we were able to do this together. Great. Thank you both uh, for the origin story. And also, I'm quite fascinated that a union is, is, was found, the stars aligned for you both, uh, collaborating on films, and a long-standing relationship. And I find that to be quite important, especially in the horror community from between filmmakers, writers, and actors, that everyone should be helping one another to progress uh, projects and visions and visual narratives is quite fascinating and, and intriguing to hear this story once again because I've heard it multiple times uh, th- these fl- flourishing uh, collaborations yeah and part of that and part of you know it was I think you know I mean Matt and Matt and I are our best friends and and you know I'm I'm an uncle to his kids and but it was you know if you kind of think you know Matt and I's relationship and the kind of the way we came up we ended up we had such a, a respect for each other and each other's work that even early on in getting to know each other we were helping each other out with with our movies you know Matt had some that he was doing on his own as you know before our friendship had really developed and I had some stuff going on and yeah we would bounce ideas off of each other we would talk to each other for you know counsel and advice and and we I think that's an instru- in a in a big way that's how we developed our such a strong friendship was out of that respect for helping each other and that's just one of the great things about for us about the Dallas the Dallas Fort Worth film community is that it is mm-hmm. it's a really tight knit community it's there's a lot of filmmakers there and and those filmmakers are all friends and we all try to come out and help each other in whatever ways we can so you know just inherently coming up in and in, in building our filmmaking careers out of Dallas you know helping each other out and supporting each other and wanting everybody to succeed and win has always been, you know, something that's really important to me and to Matt. Yeah, and I, I think the key word you use there is career, mm-hmm. because it's one thing to, you know, just have some friends that, you know, you anybody can get a bunch of their friends together and slap a movie together and throw it up on YouTube or, you know, whatever it is. But if you're lucky enough that your friends are also actually really talented pros at what they do which i mm-hmm. think is a key component right. in these kind of collaborations it, it, then then you can actually have a career which means you 
your work transcends just, you know, your mom and your friends and the cast and crew who may come see it, it actually becomes a viable, you know, thing that, you know, can take you and your infrastructure to the places you want to go and give you the creative freedom and the financial backing to actually realize some of these dreams that, that we, we're not interested in dreaming, we're interested in doing. And that's that's been the, for me, sort of echo what John said, that's kind of been the greatest boon, the biggest plus, you know, I almost feel like it's, we're kind of cheating somehow that, <laughs> that we get to, to enjoy each other as friends as we do. And we, we say it all the time. Because I, I had an enormous body of work before I met John, as as did he, and so we didn't need each other, um, you know, to to get a leg up or anything. What we found is that we wanted to work together because we both had such disparate skill sets that 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 blended really well together, and it creates this really great avenue of, of freedom that you you feel like you can trust the other guy because of the word John used, respect. You you can see they know what they're doing, and that's key. It's something we always say to, to filmmakers, maybe younger that maybe haven't done much yet. I'm like, be very careful that you're not just casting your friends. Mm-hmm. Be very careful that they also happen to be, you know, talented at what they do first. And, and if they're not, then they can still be your friends, but don't waste their time and yours. You know what I mean? And that's, that's, what's been really great about, about this is we kind of get to enjoy the ride on both sides of the fence all the way down the line. And, and, uh, about the harrowing, I just wanted to say, as far as the narrative goes and, and the challenges it presented for me and, and the way John constructed it, really, first, let me ask you, have you seen the film yet? Uh, no, I have not seen the film yet. That is on my slate of to-dos before the end of 2018. <laughs> That'd be all. Okay, well, that's great. Well, I'm, we can't wait for you to see it. And it, it really is, without, without giving too much away, mm-hmm. uh, it really is you know, a couple of different films in one. It really does start as a hard-boiled procedural sort of a cop drama mm-hmm. um, that takes a very, very hard left turn into the supernatural. Um, and and it becomes a, the back half of the movie is a vastly sort of different atmosphere, different color palette, a different energy vibe all the way down the line uh, once Calhoun is essentially allows himself to be incarcerated in a in a forensic a hospital to be evaluated for his competency. Um, but in the end, he's actually going in undercover to try to break a case he's pursuing wide open. And that's when, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, that's when all hell breaks loose to use a genre trope. Um, <laughs> and it really becomes a completely different kind of movie. And that's, that's all because of the way John constructed it. And it was for me so much fun to, to play. And of course, as you know, I'm sure films aren't shot in sequence. So, there was an enormous amount of, of incredibly uh, sort of gut wrenching, you know, soul ripping emotional stuff to play in the movie. And the back end of the film is is really loaded with it. And John <laughs> front loaded our shooting schedule so that the first couple of days, I mean, right out of the gate, were the hardest sort of emotional stuff we had to shoot. So I had to hit the ground at a full sprint, mm. uh, which which in the end, oddly, really worked in our favor because we shot on a pretty compressed schedules a 15-day schedule and and so by the time we got through that we were already all both in front of the camera and behind the camera a considerable crew and a very large cast everybody was already in shape from the gauntlet we ran the first two or three days and and so the the rest of the stuff the big company moves the larger locations the the way we were flying through the pages with amazing coverage from our cinematographer 
um, uh, Ron McPherson, it was, it, it really was a, we, we never ran out of gas, you know, for the wrong reasons. We never hit the wall. We, we were able to cross the finish line with energy to spare, which was really great. The origin stories you both have hinted on, uh, films of yesteryear, which range from Chucky to, uh, Jason. And of course we have the supernatural theme with the, with the werewolf. <clears throat> But I've seen a shift, and I'm grateful for this shift, with filmmakers now exploring, and uh, John, you alluded to this uh, as well, the psychological aspect, the human drama element oh, yeah. infused in horror. And I'm quite fascinated by this because in reality, uh, the human factor, the human psyche, human nature is a much more a scarier, haunting force than any ghouls and goblins and how have you infused that into the film? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, you know, horror, horror traditionally throughout, you know, the history of cinema has always sort of been, you know, what has resonated with audiences and what has always sort of been at the forefront of all of that is, you know, it's parallel to what's happening, you know, happening in the world around us. And, mm -hmm. you know, of course, you know, the, the sci-fi movies of the 50s are, you know, about the Russians and Cold War and, you know, George Romero's, you know, Night of the Living Dead, the social commentary on what's going on with civil rights at the time. And, you know, I think we live, you know, and then just in, you know, technology has, has increased itself to such a level, you know, between the amount of movies that are being able to be put out, the quality of those movies, the quality of the effects and stuff. I think audiences in a lot of ways have become desensitized to the creature features and the monsters and, and, you know, those sort of, those sort of horror movies. But what we are faced with is, you know, the, the, the real terror and the real parallels of the world around us and terrorism and random acts of violence and, you know, all those sort of things that are happening in our world that, that have become really scary. You know, you, you know, right. the shootings and mass shootings and it's, you know, the face of the monster in our, in our world right now, currently, you know, the face of the monster is a human being. And those and those are the things that scare us, and and so I was going to say it really is like it really is like Jean Paul Sartre says in No Exit: Hell is other people, and it becomes this. It, it John's John's assertion in the harrowing is yes, of course there are demons of the mind, and in a clinical setting, the idea is to treat them. But are the demons of the mind powerful enough that? we've misinterpreted exactly what they are. You know, uh, can they, it, this is this, while this isn't a creature feature straight down the line, the manifestation, I don't want to give too much away, but any manifestations of, you know, creature ish things that appear in the movie may or may not be real. And it's all because of the trauma that the main characters suffer or the way they're suffering, what mm -hmm. they, you know, their main character, my character, Ryan Calhoun, you know, he's been traumatized when you meet him by, the death of a previous partner on a sting operation that went badly and it was his fault and, or at least he's being blamed for it. And his best friend then that, and the, the opening sequences of the movie went that, that, you know, that are extremely violent physically. It's the psychological damage it does to him when he survives it and his partner doesn't and how traumatized he is again, almost, you know, within the same calendar year that, that drive him to become, you know, who he ultimately becomes. And at the center of all that is this quest for identity mm -hmm. and this need to identify not only his, himself, who is he really, but what is real in general. And 
you know, movies like Jacob's Ladder and Angel Heart and all those you know, movies like that that were inspirational for John when he wrote The Harrowing have been compared to it in the critical reviews that have come out um, from some of these fests and some of these larger critics of the genre that have really liked the movie. They, you know, they have been saying, if you loved Angel Heart, if you loved Jacob's Ladder, in some respects, if you loved One Throw of the Cuckoo's Nest, you're going to love The Harrowing. And that's that's territory that was not just fascinating for John to write, but it was fascinating for me to play uh, because I'm not I wasn't, you know, particularly interested in just being in a creature feature. I was interested in something else entirely. And that's what this is. It's it does have the general tropes that I think the genre fans want. Uh, but there's so much more going on in it with the dialogue and the characters and how labyrinthine and you know how deep it really is on so many different levels that you know you've really got to fasten your seatbelt and pay attention from the first frame to the last, or you're going to be rewinding. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, <laughs> what? What? You know what I mean? Right. And that's that's what we wanted all the way down the line. Yeah, and and for John, this question uh, I've seen lately a lot of psychological films really infuse the supernatural so the viewer the audience are perplexed is the protagonist being conflicted by inner demons or is it an external antagonizing force that is haunting this particular person i find that to be truly amazing and intriguing as a viewer because it it opens um, a thought process with the character you want to know what happens to him and in the case of the harrowing how important was it to create this this complex character arc well that was that was the most important thing to me i mean you know when when i'm writing characters and when i'm writing movies i mean the thing that i'm most the thing that's most important to me at the beginning and the end of it is the character story Mm -hmm. um you know as a filmmaker i'm most interested in in telling character stories and so even though almost you know the majority of everything i do is wrapped up in horror um i'm always telling a character story first and trying to create you know characters that you know you know a are interesting to an audience and an audience is going to care about and want to follow but also you know interesting to an actor to be able to explore and to play um, you know, in, you know, for me, horror, horror is a lot about is human suffering. And there's, you know, just kind of like what you said, I think one of the interesting things about, you know, horror, which is what I was doing with the harrowing was this idea, you know, of the human monster and then the interplay with the supernatural. And of mm -hmm. course, what we're talking about is we're talking about all of these sort of things, these horrors that are left in our world that are unanswerable. You know, mm -hmm. we've been able to define so many other things in our world and, you know, explain things away, but, you know, mental illness, the supernatural, so many of those elements are things that we still can't explain. And so we find them scary. And I think that's one of the reasons why, Movies like this works. One of the reasons why I was so interested in writing the harrowing in the first place was to explore what is real and what is not real. Um, you know, and I think that's something I, you know, I think there's a whole lot, like Matt was just saying, there's a whole lot of interplay in the harrowing about reality, you know, and what is real, what isn't real. Um, you know, what, you know, the mind is a very powerful thing and we're yes. able to, 
you know, in the way that we perceive the world around us, be, we're able to manipulate the, our perceptions of that. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And those are, you know, young, young shadow self. That's the dark self. That's what we're always battling in our daily lives. And so, you know, it's, it's really fun as a filmmaker, but it, to, to be able to create a character where you can really delve deeply into the questions of what is mental illness? Is it mental illness? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and is the supernatural real, you know, real or is it imagined? And so many of the things are explored in the harrowing and in what the character is constantly, I mean, he's questioning his own sanity throughout the whole movie, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there's some, some very big questions that get answered, um, in the movie while at the same time raising some very big and important questions. And that's, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of movies that leave me asking questions, not in a bad way, in a good way, but keep me thinking about the movie, thinking about the character, thinking about how I as a person can relate to that character. And, 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 you know, after people have seen the heroine, you know, particularly at the festivals, that's something that they come up and talk to us a lot about is, you know, their own sort of explorations of self and how, how Calhoun as a character and the story as a whole and the question of demons is something that I think a lot of people question. I think that's why it makes it personal and therefore such a scarier type of movie. I re- reiterate, it's quite fascinating to hear filmmakers approaching that concept. Uh, Matthew, uh, when, when you read uh, the character for Ryan Calhoun, uh, what were your initial thoughts on the, the conflict in which this character would be facing the external and internal conflicts? Well, it, the, for me, the, the through line was what I was going to focus on more than anything, because the biggest question we get, particularly at the end, is, you know, is he sane or isn't he? Mm-hmm. And I had to know the answer to that question going in, because the, the movie answers asks that question in so many different ways and doesn't particularly answer it for anybody. You kind of have to draw your own conclusions. Now, when I've been asked that question, uh, you know, in the Q and A's afterwards or by people that have been at any of the industry screenings, I always tell them what I think, but that really, it doesn't matter so much to anybody but me. And that was just for me to be able to keep my head screwed on straight while I'm playing the role from beginning to end, particularly out of sequence because shot out of sequence, the film catches Ryan in so many incarnations of himself that are, it wasn't possible for me to play like I would in a play on stage. And I come from a a large background of professional theater where I have the luxury, obviously, of playing a character from beginning to end for three hours on stage with a linear arc. And this character didn't have a linear arc. Uh, This character was, if you looked at it on a map, I mean, it was, the, the line was zigzagging all over the canvas. And so, you just have to decide, okay, if I'm an arrow shooting straight through the heart of that, this is the one the one palpable sense of Ryan everybody always has to be able to hold in their hand. And I've got to be able to hold in my head and heart to play him. And so for that, that really existed on two levels for me. I wanted, you know, Ryan has a fair amount of, there's a fairly large action component in the film, and he takes a beating in a variety of different ways physically. And so I wanted to get in shape for it, obviously. Um, and there was a, a certain look John wanted, a certain kind of a slightly more, you know, lean, leaner, gaunter, sort of flintier appearance he wanted Ryan to have because he's a veteran, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a vice detective who's really been through it. 
Uh, and Ryan isn't a young guy. Ryan's essentially my age, you know, late 40s, early 50s, and scarred up from life. So there was a physical appearance that John wanted me to have, which I think we achieved. And then on the emotional side, just an enormous range that I could, you can clearly see when you read the script, so many different musical notes Ryan has to hit uh, in order for his personality and everything happening to him to have impact. And the stakes have to be high enough that, you know, this, this sounds obvious, but regardless of how hard I'm working on the performance side of it, if the audience doesn't care about him, it, it, the whole thing collapses, you know, mm-hmm. like a lawn chair. So um, that was, and I think we achieved that too. You, whether or not you believe he's sane or insane, you have to care about Ryan and yeah. his, and his well being. You, you have to want the best for him as he goes through this stuff. And I, not going to give too much away other than that, then that was my approach was, okay, so I'm ready. This I knew it wasn't going to be a, you know, a sprint, obviously. A movie like this is a marathon, particularly because it's nonlinear. But that was my preparation going in all the way across the board yeah. of being able to, and, you know. Uh, go ahead. You know, I, and I was going to say, one of the things that was so fascinating for us, I think for you and I, actor, you know, director and actor and stuff was, you know, I remember one of the one of our very first conversations was we're going to stay away from bravado and machismo. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. keep Ryan. You know, we're going to keep Ryan real. We're going to keep Ryan human. We're going to give mm-hmm. him an emotional vulnerable on it. And, right. Yeah, vulnerable exactly. And so we we built that foundation, that through line of who Ryan is as a person. It's it's what you know makes people care about him. But I think the the to the zigzagging nature that was so fascinating was. You know, and it makes sense when a person watches the movie, but frequently, you know, almost daily, there was the question either, you know, there was the question from other actors who were involved in, and as we're trying to direct, I'm trying to direct stuff, it's, is this real? Is this imagined or is this supernatural? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so we were always kind of having to make sure that we, you know, Matt and I always knew where we were at within the story and keeping Calhoun true and vulnerable and relatable while the exterior forces that are pummeling him are coming from a whole bunch of different directions. So it was a big, it was fun having a straight through line that we are, we could always hold on to as he, as Matt walked that tightrope while things were being constantly thrown at him and getting to play with audiences perceptions of, of what might actually be happening, you know? And so and I think, you know, I, we've got to, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say to to build on that. I think really just having Ryan's boots on the ground at all times, regardless of, of of everything swirling around him in the movie, it's like any world that filmmakers try to create. They'll initially set up, you know, the rules of that world, and you'll buy in and you'll go for the ride as long as those rules don't ever get violated. You know, um, as long as they don't lie to you. And so we just didn't want. You know, we always wanted you to be able to identify with Ryan with his boots firmly on the ground to have a, you know, a bit of a there's at least there's something that you can always feel is real throughout. And that one thing for me was going to be how Ryan processes it, because real or imagined, if he processes it, you know, with enough impact, it's going to be real. You know, his boots are still on the ground with it. You've got to live through it with him. And then you'll draw your own conclusions about it as he does. But you know, if it becomes too convoluted, you know, with the performance, uh, you know, if it and that there, that's kind of a weird way of saying strip down to the studs. He's just always got to be rooted in being, you know, a real person and uh, with real vulnerabilities. In a way, he's an antihero. I, 
in a, in a recent interview he did, I sort of compared him in a weird way, not narratively, but his arc a bit to Walter White from Breaking Bad in that he's, you know, he's a good man that got dealt a really shitty deck of cards and he's playing them the best he can. But the man he becomes, the man he has to become to survive what he goes through is not the, you know, the guy he is walking out of the back door is not at all the guy he was going in the front. Mm-hmm. It changes him as as anything like that would, and in in so many ways, he's an antihero. He doesn't always make the best choice. He can be impulsive. He's but all he's really trying to do is, you know, honor the death of his best friend and find out the truth and get back to his wife. Right. You know, those are the things that that drive Ryan. Honor the memory of his best friend. Jack, who dies right in front of his eyes in ways we won't describe here because I don't want to give anything away, and get back to his wife, who's everything to him. And everything else that happens along the way, as jarring as it is, got to feel that all the way through. And that's just basically, to answer your question, that, that's what I carried with me the entire time. As long as I never lost sight of that, uh, those two things that I was dragging through the entire movie, and regardless of where we were on the timeline, then, you know, then it grounds it in reality, you know. Hearing on the film The Harrowing, it reminded me of a an old video game in which it's titled The Suffering, as same narrative with the character really uh, rooted in reality. And the audience, well, in this case, the gamer, can really relate to this character and they want to know what, what's going to happen with this guy. Uh, so once again, I commend... <laughs> Any visual narrative in horror and thriller that really conveys that type of message, seriously. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, and, that's, and I think, yeah, I appreciate that. And for me, I think that just that goes back to you know, if you think about the movies that are you know horror classics, and we'll just kind of you know, Halloween, Friday the Thirteenth. You know, a lot of those movies that we still consider classics is because they've got a protagonist, they've got a lead character that's relatable that mm-hmm. people understand, that people can. Can, can, you know, empathize or sympathize with. And that's, I think, why there's not as many movies, you know, <clears throat> even in the last 10 or 15 years that are, you know, probably will never become classics because the characters become so stylized and so separate from the audience, you know, that the that, that people can't relate to them. I mean, Hitchcock used to say, every frame I watch, I'm watching from the fir- 13th row of the theater, no matter where I'm standing out on set. I'm watching it from the 13th row of the theater because every frame, the audience has to be caring about and relating to those characters, no matter who they are. And so that's something I've always carried with me as a filmmaker. Absolutely. And also as important, the main character, the secondary and third characters, and also the the subplots itself all have to entwine in such a sophisticated way within act three that audience could say, oh, okay, this film makes sense. And oftentimes we see in horror cinema, either purposely or not, that is not the case. And it becomes a form of entertainment instead of a form of artwork where the viewer would leave the theater and they would be discussing the events of the film. And that's rewarding in itself uh, as opposed to someone leaving the theater and say, oh, wow, that was a great movie. The, the shootout scene was fantastic and the car crashes were great. <laughs> no, exactly. And that's the thing. I, wanna, I want to always 
I always want to hear people talking about my movie afterwards. You mm-hmm. know, I want them to be t- discussing it. And, you know, after some of the screenings, you know, that Matt and I have been to and stuff, we've heard, you know, people who may not necessarily realize that we were the filmmakers of it, but just listening to the conversations going on once the movie's over with, once people have filtered away, once people have gone to the restaurant next door, you know, I want people to, to carry it with it. You know, I, it's, I don't, you know, I want an hour and a half of entertainment for an audience, but I also want, wanted to kind of resonate and sit in their minds and be able to continue to live with them, um, you know, long after the movie. So that's always, that's always important to me. And I love it when any filmmaker is able to achieve that. Right. Absolutely. And, and for Matt, uh, we're nearing the completion of our, our, our interview, but, uh, final question for Matt, uh, being in your, your career and as an actor, uh, have you come across that, uh, or your personal opinion of films, particularly in horror thrillers, that the special effects oftentimes hinder the storyline. Have you ever come across a, 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 a portraying a character in a role like that? And you often find yourself saying, hey, I wish the director would have done this and this and that, or the story would have changed in this and this way. All the time. Uh, I mean, I, I'd say more often than not. Mm. Uh, yeah, the, the, the scariest films for me are generally the quietest films, right? The films that have, uh, the least, you know, louder, faster, funnier going on. Uh, the ones that truly the character studies, you know, uh, that rely on, you know, the visual narrative. We are, a, we are a visual medium after all, you know, the ones that paint the beautiful pictures with the cameras that create characters that you invest in that are, you know, with, with dialogue that means something that, you know, where the stakes are actually really high because mm-hmm. I don't think we can be surprised anymore or particularly scared or even overly entertained by CGI or special effects anymore. I mean, occasionally, you know, a new wave of, you know, the technology that's available now, even at the highest levels in the studios will come along and, and you'll, you know, momentarily go, wow, I haven't seen that before. Mm-hmm. But none of that, I think all of that pales in comparison to just making a very quiet, disturbing, you know, beautifully acted, uh, meditative character study that if you're really paying attention can just rip your soul apart. And uh, those are the, those are the films I think that have the greatest impact. And I think what you're seeing now occasionally are some of our greatest filmmakers gravitating towards the genre to elevate it in that way. Mm-hmm. And that's something that our distributors reacted to with the harrowing. Uh, it's like when Martin Scorsese made Shutter Island. I mean, it that think of that film in in sort of any of the other kinds of hands that might have made that a a far more special effects driven sort of CGI driven, you know, jump scare driven proposition. Whereas you put it in in the hands of a maestro like that, it becomes something else entirely. And, and that's, I think that's the, something that has been communicated to us pretty consistently, uh, and, and from our distributors is that what they are actively looking for now are what they call elevated genre movies, you know, genres that are definable. They can be identified in like this one, the horror thriller genre, but, but are elevated by all the other things that are going on. Uh, in the movie, you know, from a technical perspective, from a narrative perspective, from a performance perspective, all those things are so much more rich and deep and dense than you generally expect from the genre that it becomes a real delight for the people that 
that will gravitate towards a film like that, but are wanting more. And it creates crossover possibility, you know, cross pollination with fan bases of other kinds of films, maybe even the more pretentious art house crowds that would turn their nose up at something like this until they actually see what's going on. And then they're like, wow, okay, so this can be a film for us too. And I mean, John, like he said, is a storyteller at heart. And this is one of the, you know, one of, I think, the, I, I, I'd love to hear what you feel about this, John, but I think one of the most, uh, the biggest swings you've taken narratively, but one of the films that you've made that truly does have its, to use what we used to, with Ryan, its boots on the ground throughout, as far as all that goes. It's, it's, uh, it is, I think, his most mature film to date along those lines. It truly is an elevated genre movie in that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, making making intelligent horror movies is always is always, you know, what I'm what I what I attract to, and I can I can, I totally agree with what Matt said. I know we talked about that before. Is that you know the harrowing story is a culmination of 20 years of 18 years of experience and knowledge, and here's what works and here's what doesn't work and here's what I like and here's what I don't like, and you know, I, I like the way you just said that that maturity. I mean, it's the most mature mm-hmm. horror movie I've made. Definitely the most intelligent horror movie I made, and, it, and it's I, it's probably it's it's the best movie we've made. It's phenomenal. I'm just, you know, I think everybody's seeing it, and I can definitely see see in it everything we were able to achieve out of it. I look right. forward to reviewing it, and uh, it's it's imperative for us up and coming filmmakers to really focus on emotional content, character development, and of course. Uh, dialogue. Dialogue is such an important thing. It has to be eloquent, but at the same time, convey the story. And I'm not particularly keen on the horror comedies, but for the horror dramas, uh, I'm a very astute with that in, uh, dialogue exchange mm-hmm. on screen. And yeah, the final question is an open platform uh, in which both yourself, John and Matthew, please plug in. Uh, the harrowing and any other information you care to add, upcoming projects you care to share, and social media handles. Go ahead, John. Well, we yeah. So basically, uh, Matt and I have our have our own have our websites. Mine is highlandmist.com. That's h i g h l a n d m y s t dot com. Masses Wolfclan Productions dot com. Um, and when then we've all we've got the. Uh, on on Facebook, we've got uh, the Harrowing Movie. Uh, that's the moniker on Facebook. Uh, there's also the Harrowing Movie on Instagram. Um, so people can definitely, uh, you know, link come to any of those. If they come to either of our websites, they can link to the social media as well. Um, and we're rolling stuff out every single day uh, with news about the Harrowing. Um, we've got uh, Matt and I got another movie that we did. Uh, called Doom Room that's going to be coming out in January, a little bit later. Um, and uh, that's, you know, so we're kind of excited about that. But, you know, right now it's all all things harrowing uh, as a good, scary Christmas present for everybody. <laughs> there have been, yeah, there's there's been an enormous amount of press about it so far. And we share all of those links, both on our Facebook pages and then on our, our company pages and on the movie page itself and interviews, et cetera. But the the big news for the listeners is that December 25th is the day it becomes available on all the major platforms as a VOD purchase and uh, or rental or whatever they want to do with it, upload, download, streaming, et cetera, et cetera, all the big ones you, you might imagine on down the so line. We can search Comcast, Amazon, yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
and then in Canada and in the UK and and uh, it's a it's a pretty pretty giant rollout which we're excited and that'll continue to evolve right. as we get into the spring uh, as the platforms will increase and the deals are struck internationally and all those things uh, just begin to roll it out even farther so but December 25th is we're all bottlenecking all of the news and notes and announcements into December 25th Christmas Day which. Oddly enough, as counterintuitive as that sounds to roll a horror movie, a horror thriller movie out like this on Christmas, we've we've learned that historically it's a it's a really coveted date really? for those movies to come out because mm. there's there's an enormous fan base out there that don't particularly want to watch schmaltzy Christmas movies and would like nothing better than to <laughs> you know, sit down on the couch with a roaring fire and a glass of apple cider and watch a really good, you know, movie up like this. So uh, that was that was fascinating to learn. I would never have guessed, but, but we're ecstatic now that we know historically how they perform on that day. Wow! And I was about to say that's a weird date, but you you did explain it. And I myself, I don't watch, I don't even partake in anything Christmassy. So watching the harrowing of a bottle <laughs> of whiskey that would be great. Quite fascinating opinions. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. Segment three, ritual aspects in horror. All right, guys. Well, how about we talk about the ritual aspects um, that we see in films, even like the harrowing. Um, there's uh, different examples of where I've seen ritualistic um, acts. With Al Pacino, for example, and Keanu Reeves, there's ritual aspects in that film because of like Al Pacino plays the devil. You know, there's like a part in that movie where like they, his son and daughter have to like sire the next like devil child into the world and they set up for a ritual for that. So there's an example of ritual in that. And in the harrowing, you notice in the beginning of the film with uh, the prostitute, Bethany, she's in bed with the senator and he gets up to go take a shower and next thing you know she hears a knock at the door and something terrible happens to her and they come in and find her murdered in a ritualistic sense mm. um what about your thoughts ken uh for me what i find to be real ritualistic is the part in which we see well we, we Technically, it's not cannibalism, but from from the perspective of the viewer in that circumstance, in the beginning of Act One, we see someone eating some someone else, and that is that ties into being ritualistic because it could be a metaphor. It could be is the guy really consuming his soul? Uh, with uh, the psychological uh, psychological aspects to what we discussed before, or is he really that hungry of a guy that he's actually eating the guy? But the fact is, cannibalism ties in so well with being ritualistic on, on a spiritual level, on a psychological level, on a, a literal cannibalism level. We have tribes in. In, in New Guinea that believe eating someone else you would take their power or their knowledge I, so that was key scene in, in especially in the beginning of the film yeah especially with like sacrifice too that's also mm -hmm. considered ritualistic to some 
some religions like offering up a sacrifice to like their their god or their deity and you know that's ritualistic to them it's like oh we're gonna offer you up this soul or Mm -hmm. you know this sacrifice and you'll hopefully be appeased by it and you'll either reward us or if you're displeased with it you'll punish us Mm, right it Mm, this the film really touches on a lot of bases there. Yeah, I see. I see your point of view, Tessa. <laughs> I mean, Ken pretty much covered it. Like it could be a metaphor. Um, the only other thing I really could just mention is like the last really interesting cannibalism type film that I've seen was uh, Tooth and Nail, which was actually part of the eight films to die for series. If anybody remembers that, mm. but I mean. That was a, that was almost like a, a apocalyptic film where there were survivors, but there was, you know, the group that went around and did do cannibalism because to them that was their way of surviving versus the people who actually wanted real food. So I think otherwise you guys kind of got it got it dead on from what I would have said anyway like here's a good example of what i mean by the sacrificial aspect the sacrificial lamb yeah ritual the ritual movie that we watched yes when they offered up the people that you know displeased their god to that forest creature the Mm. forest god the entity oh right 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 Right. they did that though because that way the forest creature thing would, would leave be, them alone would be appeased yeah yeah mm. but then again there's your ritual aspect yeah, mm-hmm. yeah i remember that, that film right I, I i don't remember the name but i do recall watching that film mm. oh the yeah ritual. the ritual it's called oh oh d- d- duh <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it's called The Ritual. (laughs) That's called The Ritual. It's actually very good. Yes. Yes, it is. Like, like, even in the harrowing, you notice how, like, when they would take the patients, they would take patients down to, you know, the under, like, down below, and they would experiment on them and do things to them. And some of them never came back. You know, they were essentially offered up as a sacrifice. There you go. Yes. More ritualistic. Yes. Yes. I, I did. I did take note of that as well. Uh, that spiritual aspect, especially when we are uncertain of what is going on. I, I, I mentioned before MK Ultra. When I saw that part, I was like, oh, okay, that's probably some government shields. This this hospital's probably a front. And then hearing your point of view with ritualistic aspects, and we see these entities are perhaps really nefarious entities. So it does tie in well. Hmm. You picked an interesting perspective for the herring, Tessa. (laughs) The herring also delves into the traditional good versus evil concept. And for tying in with uh, ritualistic, we he we see fallen angels we see demonic entities here in this film and hmm interesting enough we see how humans throughout history from religious standpoints have interacted with 
these type of entities in both good and bad contexts. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. I um, absolutely agree. You definitely did see a lot of good and evil going back and forth and appearing throughout the film, which was is actually um, very good um, elements to add to the film itself. You know, the the battling of good and evil. Mm. You know, even in our own psyche. Yeah, and and that's what this guy went through. Uh, poor, poor. I keep saying poor guy. He is a. That's what you call uh, you do, a tortured soul. You really feel bad for him. <laughs> I mean, he, poor guy went through a shitstorm. Yeah, yeah. That is. Oh wow. I, I would not like to be in his shoes. And he uh, talk about rit- ritualism, ritualistic aspects, and 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 sacrifice. He, yeah, I think he sacrificed himself. Uh, so much uh, primarily his mind is the shit that got sacrificed here yeah his his, his mind definitely was disintegrating yeah <laughs> it was definitely destroyed ultimately unraveled and you can't super glue duct tape or gorilla glue that shit back together <laughs> once it's broken just I felt so bad for him uh, That's a nice way to put it. Isn't that a nice way to that, put it? <laughs> that is a very nice way to put it. <laughs> they usually say duct tape can fix everything. Not this. <laughs> no, no. Not even Gorilla Glue, like you said. Uh, uh, funny enough, I saw a commercial with Gorilla Glue the other day. I was like, okay. Nah. That that, that, that shit doesn't work. <laughs> you, you cannot bind a freaking <laughs> buggy together and drive it into the... Yeah, you can't do that. You can't do that with this guy's brain either. Well, I I thought overall the use of ritual aspects in the harrowing was very well used. They didn't over overuse it. It was just enough um, to get you to really like look at this film and be like, wow, they're using ritualistic elements. They're using um, demons. They're using psychological elements and it ties it all together pretty well what what about the whole um religion uh, aspect to this where in this movie the heroine uh we actually saw a very good use of it of how they properly used the religion aspect of a ritual uh scene per se while versing other films and even TV shows such as like, you know, the recent chilling adventures of Sabrina where they use the statue of, uh, how do you pronounce the Baphomet's uh, statue in a negative light. So, I mean, that can cause what, which it did. An uproar. Yes. An uproar. So Ken, what are your thoughts on that? The whole misuse of religion. Yeah, you bring an interesting point, Paul. And for though there's a whole big controversy between uh, the Church of Satan and the what was it, Sabrina, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And I think yeah. I think using symbolism like the statue of Baphomet in that case or the Ouija board is is so cliche in in horror cinema. You don't need those things anymore. In the harrowing, we never see the demons 
um, tie into a, a religion. You don't see a pentagram. You don't see some weird shit on the wall uh, tying it to. It's too cliche. And right now we see a lot of sensitivity right now with people get offended with the little shit anyway. So in the herring, it was great that we don't see that. No, in this case, it's not going to cause an uproar. And, you know, it's not going to have other people say, oh, my God, you're using this wrong, blah, blah, blah. In this case, it's its own thing. Mm-hmm. As you said, it doesn't tie into anything. It's not. There's no religious symbol. No. To cause offense to any other um, religions in this movie, which is really good because you see so much of it, like you both said in films and series where symbols and uh, religious relics are misused and um, uh, tarnished and caused to be seen in a negative light when they're not. Like, I've seen, like, like, the pentacle, for instance, misused in so many movies and turned into a negative symbol when it's not. When in, they think of the pentacle now as a sign of the devil versus what it actually stands for, which is actually a good thing. It's a, it's a religion based on nature. Right, right, right. And of, of course, in the harrowing, we don't see the cliché uh, witch coven, which also ties in that uh, Wiccans are not evil, and we don't see none of that here, which also makes the harrowing unique because it, as you said, Paul, it's it's its own thing, and instead of tying into religion, it ties into more psychological and what the whole basis of the film is about: inner demons, not external demons, using cliches, symbols, and cliche characters or witches and. Uh, whatever the case may be, a satanic freaking priest and dark dark lords or whatever it is they call them these days. I don't know. Some kind of cult or something like that. <laughs> this movie would have played out differently, and I think Tessa, you would agree. Let's say, for example, the writer puts the the hospital, uh, the head of the hospital. He was some type of satanic cult leader. I think that would just decimate the story and make it so cliche that people don't want to see it. Ah, here we go again. Another one of these bullshit movies. Yeah, exactly. You know, people would take one look at it and be like, oh, here we go. More bullshit. You know, we've seen this shit before. Like, over excess, way too much. You know, and they would just be like, I have no interest in seeing this movie all the way through. Like, I've seen enough. I don't want to see anymore. And that's pretty much it. Mm. And as a, as an actor, well, we, just looking at the cast here, we have uh, one of my favorite actors too. He, he plays a bad guy, bad guy pretty well, Michael Ironside. Uh, we have Ma- Matthew Tompkins, and we have actress actresses Adrian Martin and Hayden Tweedy. Uh, if you're going to be a part of a project, especially for horror, you don't want to tarnish your INDB with let's say something as cliche as oh here we go one of these movies about satanists and witches doing bad shit 
I think that's why they're attached to this project. They've read the script, they find it to be original, different concept, and they say, hey, I want to be a part of this project. Uh, it's unfortunate we see actors and actresses stick to that cliche sh- uh, themes and horror films and you wonder why hey why don't why can't you progress in your career oh i know because you're making these type of movies again <laughs> <laughs> and then that's become the new trend right oh uh that sounds great uh i'm, I'm glad that the hiring doesn't do that i 100 agree yeah it's definitely refreshing i'll say that you see too much of the you know ritual religious cliche bullshit in movies nowadays and it's overplayed and overused and you just kind of get sick of seeing it and with it with the harrowing you don't have to worry about that and it's like i was like wow for for once they don't use some sort of religious cliche <laughs> or or tessa uh, re- religious dialogue let's say the, the demons we could go into the script again if it was rewritten and the demons would be like I want your soul uh, how many times have we heard that <laughs> uh, way too many <laughs> yeah way too much one of the most like over overused lines in movies nowadays yeah <laughs> I come to eat your soul or I come for your soul or something like that it's like oh, come on now. your soul is mine <laughs> yeah we don't get it <laughs> no we don't uh, gentlemen Paul's uh, inner demon is showing Th- not during the podcast please no <laughs> <laughs> segment four exclusive interview Actress Ariane Martin. Concluding our official coverage of The Harrowing is our conversational interview with actress Ariane Martin. Actress, producer, and writer. For The Harrowing, Ariane Martin portrays the role of Anne Calhoun opposite Matthew Tompkin. In her INDB, you would see a diverse palette of acting genres but in particular one spotlight for me is the exceptional horror series currently on Netflix The Haunting of Hill House Ariane Martin also has starred in The Resident Drive Angry and she also has a slate of upcoming films according to INDB in this conversational interview we delve into her career we delve into her role as Anne Calhoun in The Harring and also some inspirational quotes for content creators out there, whether you are actress, actor, director, or writer. Without further ado, and to conclude our coverage with the exclusive interview portion of this coverage is my conversation with Ariane Martin. Uh, first of all, thank you for your time and for this interview opportunity discussing your role in the harrowing. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and 
I'd like to kick off the interview with a bit of an origin story, a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the performing arts. Oh, yes. Well, it's a long story. Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I started out, um, I really had wanted to be a director. And so um, right out of high school, I kind of followed that path and went to film school and um, started creating little shorts and films. And then um, I had made some friends and they would just, you know, who were filmmakers as well, who'd meet in an actor or something and they'd throw me in there. And um, I really, it, it kind of awakened something I didn't know existed. And um, yeah, once, once you get a taste, <laughs> yes, <that is laughs> it so was true. kind of one of those meant to be sort of things. And um, I started to pursue it and yeah, I was able to pay my bills and people put me in stuff and paid me to do it. And yeah, I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> oh, that's great. And it's funny because when I asked the origin story to kick off the interview, 90% of the guests said, it's a long story. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's not for the weak of heart, that's for sure, you know? <laughs> it's always interesting. I, I, I like to start off the interview that way because audiences or listeners uh, to music, if it's a musician, uh, they only see the performer. It's always good to see the, the human side and the struggle because to create content or to be in a performing arts, it's always a struggle to find that next gig or to break out into the next role. Absolutely. And all, all the work and, you know, blood, sweat and tears that goes behind, you know, the performance or the passion, you know. And I think audiences definitely feel it. They just, you know don't see the the work that goes behind the scenes for sure with your recent work well you have a few projects uh that have released in 2018 the haunting of a hill house is such a popular series on netflix yes and i was very very lucky to be a part of it <laughs> it was a, it was a great great experience and cast and crew was just phenomenal and mike flanagan the director it was just amazing to work with and um I, I'm I'm excited to see what he has next, which I believe is Doctor Sleep, um, mm. the sequel to The Shining, which you know could could be a scary thing, but in his hands, I, I definitely trust it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and the parallel with the haunting of Hill House with the harrowing is a good character narrative, and I do enjoy it, especially when it comes to horror. I particularly am focused on the character. A little bit of your character and Calhoun. She plays a very important role in that film. Yeah, um, I think it. It's she brings um, a little more of you know the background and the humanity of the main character. You know, you see that he has somebody that loves him and cares for him, and then so when he goes on this crazy you know adventure sort of thing. You, it, it takes you back to reality. Like, yeah, but he has somebody, you know, that cares about him and loves him and who's invested in him. So, you know, you you fear for him when he's put in danger and all the, you know, 
things are happening to him. Right. I know it's kind of difficult because the movie's about to release on a very weird date on Christmas. It's, I know. <laughs> I know. It would be a bloody Christmas. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I just finished speaking with, uh, with the director for the film, The Herring, and also the the actor who portrayed uh ryan calhoun and some great insights on the film i mean i just finished watching it last night and like i said i enjoy character driven narrative uh what was your opinion uh when you read the script and you see all this conflict happening to this poor guy i, I found him to be a poor guy <laughs> poor soul <laughs> yeah for sure um I mean, it was one of those scripts, which, I mean, in all films, this happens. You have the script, and then you have the shoot, and then you have the edit. And then mm -hmm. what happens in the final edit can be completely different than, you know, uh, the script or even the shoot experience. Um, but reading it, it was one of those things that... I I love when there's mystery and mm -hmm. things aren't spelled out exactly. Like I, I like to try to figure it out for myself. And it was definitely a script that I kept going, changing my mind. You know, I didn't have it figured out in the first ten pages. I was like, wait, no, no, okay, <laughs> but was it? No. Uh, so I just I loved that it constantly had me thinking, and you know, it, it never once was predictable. So that's what I really enjoyed about the script right and uh, just as you had noted uh, uh, the character that you portray and Calhoun uh, plays such a vital role for this guy I think that is the key that from act one to act three she is the key for his sanity and mm -hmm. borderline insanity <laughs> right right <laughs> Yeah, it's like the only person he can trust, like, or can he? Yeah. <laughs> Horror cinema always has the, it's a platform for a, a, a thinking tool. Uh, watching the film, you after watching the film, I begin to wonder, okay, what was the intended message here? And with all the tribulations that the main character went through, It all comes down to, from my interpretation, uh, guilty, feeling guilty, and remorse. Uh, was that something that you came up with as mm. well? Well, you know what? That's the beauty of art right? and filmmaking is mm -hmm. that everybody's going to get something a little bit different from it. Um, but I do love that. Absolutely. I think I think it can be interpreted as an inner demon sort of situation, you know, um, but but that is the beauty of, of film is that everybody's going to take away something just a little bit different. Right. Yeah. I always uh, parallel, especially horror cinema, because it, it gets such a bad rap because most audiences think it's blood splatter and guts, which we see in this film, too. But <laughs> It, it's it's an art form, and you could get many positive messages through blood and gore. <laughs> Absolutely, and um, and the harrowing is kind of a, a little bit of a crossbreed. You know, it's it's a little bit of you know a cop drama. It's it's a little bit of a psychological drama. Um, plus, you know, I feel like the horror just adds to the you know intensity of the whole. The, the whole thing so i don't i don't it's it's a nice mix of all those things 
Right. Yes, yeah, it does definitely cross his genres. Uh, when I watched the film, I said to myself, hmm, this would be quite an interesting film if the protagonist were a female instead of, uh, you know, the roles w would be reversed. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. I always love, you know, flipping the, the gender script, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm always curious, like, what if we switch this? Like, what, how different would it make the movie? And how different would the message be? It's interesting. Yeah, for sure. And especially with the current landscape right now, we see more female in horror films uh, really taking the lead in as a director, writer, producer. In most of the cases, a whole film could be uh, female driven. And which that's, that's the great thing that of the age that we're living in right now. We see that diversity. Absolutely. And didn't they just have an article that came out and said that, that female led films are actually banking better in the box office than male driven films. <laughs> yes. <laughs> did the math on that. Um, <laughs> which is excellent. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's a whole new, um, it's a new time for that, for sure. So I'll have to talk to John Keyes about that and tell him <laughs> that's what he needs to do. He needs to cast me in his next. <laughs> as, exactly. As the <laughs> we need to flip the script a little bit. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, director John Keyes, he's churned out two films back to back and they virtually uh, one week apart. So I'm sure he has a script up his sleeve uh, that you could tr oh, uh, convince you, him. Yes, John <laughs> is... I've known John for years, and mm -hmm. I've always admired him, and he's just... He's, he's so hardworking. He is very detailed, but he's also very efficient mm -hmm. with people's time. Like my stuff was shot, I believe in two days. And when I oh. first saw that, I was like, there's no way, there's no way we're shooting all of my stuff in two days. And you better believe we did. And, but I never felt rushed. Mm -hmm. It always, like it always felt he's very patient. Um, Matthew Tompkins, super easy to work with. He's a veteran in the Dallas film scene and, you know, it was just, it was, it was just a lot of fun. And we just, you know, like professionals just went in and got it done. <laughs> Having a conversation with, with the lead, uh, su such a cool laid back voice, but you see on film is such a different tonality. It just amazes me how performers, actors, actresses really delve into that role and make it so convincing. If they want to be the antagonist, they really go all out. That's the fun about, you know, being in film and getting to experience all that. I, I think that's really what draws, you know, artists and actors into into this business because you can be one way and then experience a completely different, you know, person, personality, job, life, whatnot. And it's, it's, I think it helps give you an understanding and empathy for different walks of life. Right. That's mm -hmm. especially when it evolves during the research behind a particular character. Say, for instance, uh, uh, Calhoun, uh, his, he's a detective. So I'm sure there was some uh, thought processes behind making that role more authentic. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And Matthew's been doing this for a long time, and he definitely 
does his homework and and make sure that he's prepared for his roles for sure. And uh, <clears throat> speaking about directing, uh, what are some of the aspects that uh, you take into consideration when you're the director? Um, I think it helps having, you know, when um, I think directors who have done any type of acting are definitely a little more um, sensitive to what the actor's process is and what they need and um, if they're in their head or mm -hmm. if it's, it's, it's just, I think it's a, it's a slightly different experience, but I don't think you necessarily, uh, I've worked with amazing directors that, you know, could not act their way out of a paper sack, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they're amazing and, you know, they're able to get the performances that they need. Um, it's, it's a little bit different of a muscle. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, especially because I, majority of my work is acting, um, it, it's it's kind of just a different side of the brain that you have to um, flip over to. Uh, but it's different. It's a different type of um, excitement, I think. Ah, I see. It, it's, it's quite interesting. I've heard uh, various comments of actors who find themselves in a situation where the director will tell them, okay, read the lines and uh, do what you're supposed to do here, which, of course, uh, may happen to an actor's career anytime in point. Uh, but it's always good to have a broad spectrum of range. So if you want to be the actor, you could be the director, you could have that sens sensitivity of what the performer is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I highly recommend anybody who is thinking about getting into acting or even directing to work as a crew member in some position as a PA or, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who does crafty or just to be able to understand how important the other jobs are as well. And if you didn't have those people doing those jobs, you wouldn't have a film. And I think it's important to really appreciate and understand what every job entails. And just so you can appreciate even more so. Um, and, and I think if, if you just get a taste or at least are able to experience it, um, it's going to give you a whole nother appreciation for everybody that's working together, you know, to, to accomplish the vision of the director and, and the actors. Uh, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I myself, as having experience on a set, I know that it can get chaotic very fast. Yes. <laughs> and so many personalities and, and different, right. you know, types of people that are having to work together. You know, it's, it's, you, some sets you become more like a family and some sets you're like, and I will never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and you, from both spectrums that you described there, it's, uh, it's beneficial because it, both of them are a great learning experience. Uh, one scenario you could avoid and the other one you would definitely seek out for the next project. Yes. And, and sometimes you'd be surprised. Um, I had, I worked on um, a film that was a 1920s Western and we were shooting in uh, Wyoming, middle of nowhere. 
And um, one of the crew members, uh, he was the sound guy, he got in a terrible accident and had to go to the emergency room, but he was, you know, completely out. So we were out a crew member and one of the girls, she was right out of college. She had just, um, she came on as like a, a wardrobe assistant, took his place as boom operator in sound, learned how to, he taught her how to do it, learned how to do it. She is now working on Academy Award winning uh, films in sound, sound design. Wow. So she had no idea that that was going to be something that she was good at or interested, but because she was able to step in and had, you know, and he's okay, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so he, he, he had some stitches. But he's okay. <laughs> but uh, it, it opened up a whole an amazing career for her that she didn't even know um, was was something she was into. Look at that! Well, I bet she's forever grateful for that uh, misfortune on his part. That it would never have happened for her. <laughs> right? Yeah. And looking at your INDB, you have a of quite a few films in horror cinema. Is this a genre that you particularly fancy, or does it just fall into your lap uh, going getting into horror <laughs> I films? I think it's a genre that fancies me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just, uh, towards the beginning of my career, um, I, yeah, I, I was fortunate to get to work on some really g- great, you know, indie underground um, horror films, but I've had the most fun making horror films and I have met some of the most amazing people and amazing fans that just have made the whole experience great. I, I, I do, I'm a little bit of a chicken when it comes to <laughs> some of the really intense horror, I could shoot it all day long, cut off my limbs, you know, kill me a million times. But watching it, uh-huh. on the other hand, is a, I'm a little chicken. I do <laughs> love, um, I think I'm more into the suspense kind of intellectual horror, more mm-hmm. like the shining um, type, you know, alien t- type horror. I think that would be closer to my um particular taste in horror, but I, I do love and have had um, great experiences and have a lot of respect for horror films and, and the horror genre. Oh, that is so. And it's funny that you mentioned uh, the gore factor because in the harrowing, yeah, yeah I, I think there are a couple of scenes where it was gory for oh, you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> And I, this, it's kind of a funny story. So, I, like I said, we we shot all my stuff in two days, and so you know, there's a lot of wardrobe changes and mm-hmm. blood and special effects and all these things. And so, um, we shot majority of my stuff, and then it, it was like two or three o'clock in the morning. And now, Ooh. you know, it was without giving it away. It was a scene where I'm pretty much covered in blood, uh-huh. and um, they have this like little it's it's kind of like a blood squirter thing but it was really hot. it was summer in texas but the blood was really cold and it came out really fast and it hit all the warm places if you know what i mean oh. and it was just it was so shocking I, like my body just just started 
laughing uncontrollably and I just couldn't stop for for a good like five <laughs> minutes. It was it was pretty intense. And then at, we shot that scene and then I had to quickly shower and and then it's another scene where I'm talking to my husband, you know, because he's you know, getting obsessed with the case and um, they had to to put me in a like a uh, war like a what is it called? When you get out of the shower and you put on a robe. There we go. That's oh, the word. Okay. Uh, because my skin was slightly discolored from the blood. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we had to cover, you know, certain parts of the body that, that the, the blood didn't come off of. Oh, but it was wow. so much fun. I had so much fun shooting this film. Oh wow that that is some and that reminds me I, I heard something quite similar to that and in, in her case she was all bloodied she was the actress of the film and she couldn't get the blood off her nails and the following day she had to do a model shoot with her hands <gasps> oh <laughs> yes i i feel her pain <laughs> <laughs> these are the comical sides of doing horror cinema <laughs> I know. I'm like, have it, they, they have to invent something that doesn't stain. And there's definitely some that don't stain as bad, but I don't, I don't know if it exists yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, it should be on the market, I tell you, because, of course, I would figure that that scene in particular would be the last because it would involve, you know, your, your cake in stuff. And oh, I thought it would be too, but I get, there was a reason it was scheduled that way, but I was like, what? 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 But we still have oh my god, and my hair didn't dry, and that's why my hair is wet in that scene. Ah, <laughs> look at that. That should but be... It, it ended up being my favorite, one of my favorite scenes. Mm. Like, I'm glad, like, I just was, like, stripped down, you know, and just mm -hmm. wet, and I, I feel like it, it made that scene even better, for sure. Mm. Yeah, that that should that scene should be in the uh, behind the scenes DVD uh, portion of the film. <laughs> For directing, is horror cinema something that you would like to uh, delve into more? Yeah, I, I I have had a few ideas um, that I've been working on, and one is a short that's kind of a sci-fi horror. Um, but it's still in the like brain <laughs> sort of figuring out the storyline and what makes sense, but it's definitely something I have been mulling over for a little bit of time. Um, so yes, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. I, I completely understand as from, from a writer, so many ideas just float into your head and it's just difficult to pin one down and, uh, dissected into a three-part act, especially for a short film. Yes, <laughs> and and to make sense uh, somewhat, you know, it doesn't have to be completely coherent, but somewhat. Right, where people right. are like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely, yeah. And for short films as well, it's m more of a challenge as a writer because you have to condense the storyline in, let's say, ten minutes. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of questions to close out the interview. Uh, one is one thing that I like to infuse into each interview is an inspirational portion. What are your advices for those starting out, especially 
let's say, women who want to start out in horror cinema? Mm. Um, well, I think it goes back to kind of what um, I was talking about earlier is it, it is one of those industries that um, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of passion and really just um, if you're a writer, write. Start writing, start getting as many things on paper as you can. If you're an actor, start um, get jobs on crew and find out what the other positions are. Start meeting people, start um, reading about other actors, watch films, um, kind of, you know, really uh, educate yourself and get inspired and, um, and directors, you know, get your friends, get, get actors and, and start making things. And I, I think the more you make, the more uh, you're going to be inspired, the more you're going to learn and, and just, Put in the work, keep, you know, it, it can be disheartening at sometimes, you know, it can, it can be a frustrating business, but, um, I think if you keep going and you keep pursuing and, um, it, it's, it's definitely fulfilling and, and something will eventually happen. Uh, that is, that is definitely true. And I also see that volunteering or interning is still an option for actors. Where there are some platforms where they would, just to build up their resume, they could just uh, be a part of the film. Uh, there's still nothing wrong with that. No, ab absolutely not. Uh, it's it, Actors, unless you, it's kind of almost like winning the lottery. It, mm -hmm. it's, it has a lot of luck. Talent, yes. Um uh, preparation meets luck, you know, it's right. kind of that. So it's a little bit of talent, a little bit of, you know, a lot of preparation and luck. Luck has a lot to do with it. But I think if you really love um, filming and being on set and um, just being around it and, and meeting people, um, it, it's definitely something that, Eventually, those those relationships can can bloom. I mean, I've known John Keyes for almost 10, 11 years, 11, Ooh. 12 years. We worked on a film, um, I think, in 2007, and we'd, we'd been wanting to work together oh, wow. <laughs> again. And finally, you know, the, the right role and the right film came around. And um, hopefully we'll make more. Of course sooner than later <laughs> right. oh, of course hey, and don't forget uh convince him yes yeah, lead role <laughs> yes no that, that I, I might make a phone call tonight <laughs> <laughs> and uh this is an open platform portion of the interview uh, uh, where you get to plug in any upcoming projects that you can share and the harrowing and social media platforms um, sure. Um, well, most of the stuff that I have coming up, I can't announce yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I had, I just recently, uh, was on the resident on Fox. So that was fun. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook is the one I'm on Twitter too, but I don't tweet that much. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so on the typical, you know, uh, social media stuff but and you can just google Ariane martin and 
I'm sure they'll come up. Oh, and, and yes, and, and, a, and a few of my own projects um, are in the works as well. Great. Uh, looking forward to that. And uh, my wife watches The Resident over the time, so I'm going to let her know, hey. Uh, <laughs> so so it's in, in this episode, uh, which is I, looking at INDB Heart in a Box, hey, that, that's a familiar face right there. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, well, thank you for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you uh, across all these different topics, including the harrowing. Uh, happy New Year and happy holidays to you. Thank you, and the same to you. Segment 5. Demonic Aspects in Horror. So, let's get Derek down to the demons. I think this is going to be like a perfect fit for this segment because of the fact these demons were mostly done with practical effects. But, however, there was one scene that was definitely CGI and, and, and I don't really say this that much either, is this CGI scene actually worked. And it was when Ryan or Matthew as the actor uh, stood up and faced his demon. And right there where you see the demon staring back with the uh, dripping of the black goo and stuff that's dripping down to the floor. You definitely knew that was CGI. Or was it really? Because it does make you think. Could that actually have been like, what to say, blood of some sort that the guy was just covered in? So it really does kind of mess with your mind of that one particular scene. But uh, as the demon progressed, you know, you got to see the non-gooey or slimy versions of the creatures, which as Tessa was mentioning before, when patients were going down into the, um, what to say, the underground laboratory with the doctor with that weird like mask and white eyes and a bloody ass bald head I think is what it came down to but you know right there and th- right then and there as Tessa was also saying with the whole ritual aspect as patients were not coming back I mean it was really interesting especially with the doctor uh, Dr. Franklin who actually said with a scalp uh, scalpel scalpel yes thank you that what did he, what did he, how did he word it? That it was time to bring out your inner demon. Time to unleash them. Yes. So, Tessa, what were your thoughts on the whole, you know, bringing out your inner demon? I thought it was kind of interesting how he chose, Dr. Uh, Franklin Whitney uh, chose to unleash the demons out of people. He, you know, used it. Like in even in a ritualistic sense, he he shed blood. He he dissected them. He experimented on them, you know, and he pushed their boundaries, you know, to flip that switch to be like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna see what makes you tick, and we're gonna push your boundaries, and we're gonna you know open you up and let out your inner demons. Right. Which also brings to the fact of like what you were saying too, where most people didn't come out of or come back up. And is that maybe because 
when trying to unleash their inner demon, they weren't strong enough. Like they weren't their host. Uh, the host of the body will just say for the demon wasn't strong enough. So because of trying to bring out their inner demon, it actually was too much for them that they died right there. And that would be like, which we're talking about last uh, segment would be the ritual. Uh, Ken. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Now, 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 now that I think about it, maybe that basement serves as a metaphor there. Hmm. Now I'm trying to ponder here of what that metaphor could be because if the patience never came up, how, hmm. Okay. Perhaps by the end of the podcast, I would come up with the, with the rationale behind that. But anyway, Paul, uh, I digress. Going back to what you were talking about with the practical effects, in, in my opinion, we've seen traditional demons horns blah 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 all this uh, red skin and we, we don't know what demons look like so this is an artistic interpretation i find the practical effects used in the harrowing was different remarkable and as you noted uh, the cgi works well here i i definitely don't like cgi but when it's 80 20 as uh, Sui Sinclair had mentioned in our previous episode when you have 80% practical effects and 20% CGI to touch up on things that's a great chemistry and I think the harrowing the showcases that 100% I, I dislike it when indie horror uh, filmmakers rely on CGI for blood splatter and all this shit it doesn't look as authentic as it should I, I, I 100% agree with that and you know we don't want that pink blood because then it takes us that right out of the movie we don't want that CGI uh, creature because it takes us out of the movie once we realize it's a CGI movie then the whole thing can be in fact ruined to even watch for the whole thing mm. yeah I 100% agree there and these creatures here are I wouldn't say uh, scary I, I, I'm i too numb to what the term scary means but I would say they they fucking badass uh, I haven't seen a, a demon creature like look like that ever and the way it reminds me of something from Guillermo del Toro something that he created in, in one of his films it, it looks that weird yeah yeah I mean well we we gotta look at it like this everybody who has demons which we all have demons somewhere if we don't they're somewhere working in the darkness waiting, waiting for that one screw up of yours but anyway the point that I'm trying to make is everybody has different demons it's not always the same demon so the way uh, the heroin takes it is this is Ryan's or in this specific way of putting it this hospital's wet, uh, demon which is different from other demons so that's what I liked about it is that is like you were saying it's something we haven't really seen for this type of demon and it is badass and I like the, the uh, creature or demon designs of this which I like the weird 
uh, rounded horn that go all like all the way around the head. Right, right. And going back to another quote that Matthew Tompkins, who portrays the protagonist, he, he, he states the following quote, the idea of being able to drive the narrative, utilizing all these things to truly put that off from both a commercial and artistic perspective was a fantastic opportunity for us as filmmakers, unquote. And from that quote right there, uh, he uses the term artistic perspective. And that ties into what you were just saying right now, uh, how everybody has internal demons and however we interpret them to be, let's say, as a uh, an artistic person or filmmaker, it could be totally different from the next person and the next person. And for the demons in the harrowing, the way they look, it, they're, they're intimidating. And also the nurses or the doc yeah the nurses the orderlies uh correction when they were taking the patients down to the basement i, I said to myself hmm, why does this guy look like sub-zero or scorpion from mortal kombat <laughs> <laughs> i didn't think of that either and i should have because i used to be clicks now now that he mentions it like I the can white see eyes it. and the yeah, mask yeah I can see it yeah <laughs> but yeah, when I saw it the first time I laughed but watching it the second time I say hmm okay this could play well because what the protagonist is going through he's probably seen these or they could be looking regular let's say in real life but in his mind they could be as grotesque as that and probably he played a lot of Mortal Kombat and he made him look like Scorpion you never know <laughs> right that just makes me giggle get over here <laughs> <laughs> take your meds now <laughs> boy <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh wow we... it's kind of funny now that Ken points it out <laughs> Uh, we just took a serious topic and made a made a comedy element. <laughs> uh, not everything has to be so serious. Um, well, what about you, Tether? What are your thoughts on the whole practical effects that we saw and CGI? I thought the the use of practical effects was pretty well balanced, um, and the fact that there wasn't like a CGI in excess was just. It was great. I mean, they used just enough CGI when they needed to use it. And they didn't, you know, over CGI um, use of the demon. They only used it at, when they needed to use it. And it was tasteful the way that they did it. It wasn't like too much. Mm. And the use of practical effects were really nice. Like, the blood looked like blood. It it looked believable. It wasn't like, like you guys said, it wasn't too pink. It, it actually looked like real blood. And the dismemberment of the body parts and things like that, that looked real. <laughs> like, the... the, the, the demon nomming on the, one of the patient's guts in the in the underground laboratory you know the entrails on that patient that looked real like the use of practical effects it was good it was well balanced mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So yeah. that, that's my thoughts. Hmm. It, oh, hmm. Now that you mention it, uh, uh, Paul, we're talking here about de de demonic aspects or demon aspects in the harrowing. Uh, not all the demons were uh, demons and grotesque. We have a wide variety of what the demons were. If you really come to think of it, uh, we could also include his wife into it. She could be, she's human, but she's also part of what sets everything in motion. That could be a demon in itself. Uh, from, exactly. from, a, from a symbolistic standpoint. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, not, not all demons are ugly and grotesque. Some mm. of them walk, go walking around in human skin. Mm-hmm. Yes. And... Like, uh, like American Horror Story says, not all monsters are human. Ah. <laughs> all right, I gotta, I gotta throw it out there before I would the the quote that I was gonna use. So there, there's a band Warwick that I think fits perfect for this, and the whole entire quote goes, "Look out, look out, look by your side. Sometimes the devil wears a pretty disguise." Mm hmm. So. So I just had to throw that in there because that, that I think that works perfect. Fits. That fit well. We that that quote fit with with the character Ella, portrayed by Hayden Tweedy. Hmm. Is she? Yeah, because she was she was a necrophiliac and a nymphomaniac. That's uh, interesting. With the whole uh, would you fuck me if I were dead thing? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. She she killed her uh, she killed her doctor and then screwed his corpse. She was found screwing his corpse. Yeah. Oh yeah. She was an interesting character. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that yeah, she could be classified as a demon too. And yeah, she very yeah. well could. Hmm. Uh, we could we could delve into some psycho psychological analyst analyst here of this film. <laughs> yeah, we exactly. could really pick apart the psychological aspects of this film big time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, amazing. Uh, special and practical effects. I gotta agree with you, Paul. Uh, some, and that that's something you don't see every day in indie horror. So that that well balanced chemistry. Exactly. I think I think most films lack that when they're trying to um, portray something like that. Really, like like the ingredient is there, but sometimes it can be a missed opportunity. Hmm. Right, right, and uh, here, <laughs> uh, Paul, you mentioned the 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 blood and guts portion for this film. That in our interview with Ariane Martin, who portrays uh, the the wife and Calhoun, she she mentioned one part that was the blooper, the blooper reel for her was one part in particular, Paul and Tessa that we find we see the wife she is not in good condition she's on the bed and not to reveal, reveal too much but she's not looking too good there uh, in that scene in particular she was laughing during the shoot because the blood malfunctioned somehow and it just squirted all over her and 
went into areas that we cannot mention, but it was the <laughs> it was it was warm in that area, and the blood was cold, so it made her laugh. It was ticklish. So she had to hold that in until the director said cut, and she just burst out laughing. So that's one aspect right there. You don't hear that every day. I have to hold some pretty good composure then. <laughs> that Horrible. I found that to be hilarious. <laughs> Props for you. Props. Yeah. Very. That that's Props that's what for you call you, Arianne Martin. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fine actress right there. Oh wow. A behind-the-scenes tidbit. Cold blood in warm areas makes you laugh. (laughs) I actually thought it was pretty interesting when I read up that she was actually in The Haunting of Hill House. I pointed that out to Paul, and I was like, I was like, look at this. And he goes, oh. So the last thing I just want to talk to each of you about for final thoughts is, so at the very end of the film where we finally really see what goes down. There's one particular scene, which I will not mention who it is or anything for because I don't want to spoil too much either. But one thing that I find with the practical effects when it came to the blood is right as the guy got his throat slit and then his mouth is gushing out all that blood. That would be the only time where I was kind of just like, whoa, I think that might be too much blood because I'm pretty sure we're not going to have a mouthful of blood like that as far as <laughs> throat, throat, throat were sweat. Yeah, it was definitely way too much blood. It was like a like a geyser of blood for <laughs> for uh, an, having your throat slashed. Hmm. I can, un- I mean, I can understand like some blood coming out of your mouth, like you coughing up blood because your throat slashed. But you would think more of the blood would actually come out of the, the wound throat, itself yes. versus your mouth. Mm, yeah, right. Well, uh, I've I've seen worse in other films. I've seen uh, the victim get their throat slashed, and all of a sudden you see an endless stream of. I don't know what prosthetic they had under under there, but it was just a water fountain spewing out of their neck. And I, I'm no doctor, and uh, Stephen uh, Gillespie from Possessed Radio is not here to to clarify on how the blood splatters should be looking here. But I I, I know it's not going to look like a water fountain spewing out of your neck uncontrollably. Is there has to be some type of level of realism there? I wish it wasn't spraying blood. <laughs> I think they were yeah, going for visual impact there. That's what I think. Yeah, but there's a way that you can still get visual impact without having to go overboard with it and give way too much excess. Mm, right. You, know, you can give just the right amount of blood just to, you know get the point across and it can still be like well done and not look like oh this is totally unrealistic mm. Mm. That's just, there's yeah. like no way that somebody would be like losing like gallons and gallons of blood like continuously out of like one orifice <laughs> 
uh, hope, hopefully not. No. Uh, wow. Hmm. It, it, it's interesting. Uh, you got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, I'm, I'm trying to compose my laughter. You, you, the word orifice just sounded so funny there. But anyway, uh, well, technically, the mouth is an orifice. Yes, yes. Uh, that's you're interesting because you know I, I, your eyes. <laughs> you're getting way too much technical and you know you did not have to shine in on it ken we're trying to wrap this up I think. <laughs> oh wow H- hilarious uh, it wait that that also ties in I, I did not see no comedic element i mean we hear laughing about a particular scene but in the harrowing i th- this is the first film that i see from beginning to end is just demons and gore and psychology there was no comedic element at all which i liked about it hmm that's that's unorthodox usually in horror films we see some type of comedy just like how we having right now and that breaks up the tension hmm tense film I guess we are pretty much putting in our two cents ourselves to add to the comedic <laughs> add uh, our own little comedic flair to it I guess I don't know <laughs> mm, uh, but but yeah Paul on, on, uh, before we digress uh, what you were mentioning uh, from my perspective I think the visual impact they wanted to go a little bit overboard I understand Tessa's uh, point of view it shouldn't have been should have been more realism but overall I'm, I'm satisfied the, the, at least it looks the way it should with the practical and CGI and this whole topic we're discussing and hey those demons look badass final thoughts closing remarks and to close out DK Mag Sessions episode 20 in which we discussed the harrowing closing remarks uh, first of all thank you Paul Dosky Tessa Baker from Everything Horror Podcast for your input and for the segments that you have presented on the harrowing oh, you're, you're very so welcome you're very welcome Ken thank you very much for having us it was an honor. You're welcome. And closing closing remarks, what can we say about the harrowing? Uh, hmm. From my perspective, I think we all agree. This is this is a unique film, and hopefully it won't fly under the radar. I certainly hope not. This definitely needs to be... It needs to be spread out around. in the spotlight. Yeah, everyone's got to see it. Yes. And for my final thoughts of this film is that the heroine is going to be probably the next supernatural thriller that we all want to have more of. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, I had mentioned the cast uh, in the second segment. Well, yeah, the second segment. And we have a roster here of very talented actors that really portray these roles uh, phenomenally. And perhaps audiences may say, oh, the acting's kind of shaky, the acting's kind of shady. No, no, no. It, I think the acting is just right. It may have its 
elements of okay questionable emotional content but you overlook it because overall the story is unique and we also touched on how the ritualistic and the demonic aspect of the film are the highlights especially practical effects yeah i was just about to say we all gotta appreciate the practical the practical effect in the film just because of how well done it is and how they made them feel believable mm. right yeah. yeah there's definitely a lot to appreciate about the the film the harrowing mm. and Tessa, uh, what were your thoughts again? Uh, I don't think you you added your thoughts. So go, what did you think of the harrowing? Uh, I I thought it was uh, very well done. I'm glad that they didn't use um, religious cliches in the film, and the practical effects were well done. It wasn't it wasn't too much, and it looked believable. And um, I also liked um, the fact that there wasn't a lot of CGI in the film. There was just enough. It was tasteful. It was well-placed. The storyline was really good, too. I felt awful for the protagonist um, by the end of it. But I thought, overall, it was really good. And I would recommend that you guys go out and see it when it comes out. Right. And as I'd mentioned... It, it releases on a weird date. VOD, <laughs> on demand, Christmas Day via Clay Epstein's Film Mode Entertainment. Oh, well, wow. there you go, guys. Get your cup of eggnog and go watch it on, on Christmas Day after you open your presents. Exactly. <laughs> and get the alcohol with the eggnog. I mean, um, yeah. yeah. Have a little get spice to your eggnog. Have a spice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm already starting. I have two bottles of whiskey and in my Instagram feed, I had seen someone mention that they had secured a rare bottle of uh, Kentucky bourbon. And lo and behold, I go to my favorite liquor store and I see the bottle like, OK, I'm, I'm getting you for Christmas. I want to see what the, how, how this tastes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And hey, off over a bottle of whiskey or of a bottle of wine the harrowing would be even more harrowing because it's going to raise the hair on your necks, especially ever when you feel that buzz. <laughs> It'll be worth it. Yeah. Hey, some, some horror enthusiasts, they want, well, not horror enthusiasts. I would say the casual viewer for horror films. All they appreciate is jump scares or, this or that yeah. I think sometimes you really need to sit back watch a film like this like the harrowing and enjoy the different things that it offers psychology spiritual and practical effects alright well because you just had to bring that up Ken I have one more thing to state then and that is going to the harrowing looking for that great story do not go into it looking to become scared because it's just not going to happen it's more psychological than anything. It's not something that's going to jump scare you at every turn. It's something that's going to really get into your head and make you think, well... Am I really this person or am I not? Mm. Yeah, interesting perspective. And on that, we're going to close it on that note. And once again, Paul, Tessa, thank you so much for, for joining me on DK Mag Sessions.
episode 20 in which we talk the harrowing. <laughs>